This is your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 193 with guest Terry Cole. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, ass kickers. Welcome to another edition of the podcast. I am so glad that you are here. Thank you so much for spending your time with me. Some of you every single week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And for those of you that are new, welcome to your kick-ass life podcast. This week, I'm currently on my book tour and I'm with my 10 year old son. It's been great so far, but it is cold. (laughs) It's so cold in New York city. Then After this week, I go home and then I fly to Chicago with my daughter. I'm taking her on that leg of the book tour and it's going to be even colder, which by the way, if you are interested, I have one spot left for the small private workshop that I am doing there in Chicago. If you hop on over to yourkickasslife.com slash 193, you can grab the link there in the show notes. I also wanted to let you know that I have one space open starting in February for anyone that wants to work with me privately. I do some private work. I take very few clients at a time and you can read more about that at yourkickasslife.com slash daring. And on that same page, there is an application to fill out if you feel that that work is for you. I'd be more than happy to talk to you about it. And the last thing I wanted to tell you about before we jump into this episode, which I'm so excited about, is January 22nd. We are starting the free book club that I have put together for you around my brand new book, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit. So many of you amazing women have signed up for it already and are waiting for the Facebook group to open, and that'll open on January 21st. I'll open it up a day early for inner But this group is free for anyone who purchases my book, whether it's in hard copy, e-reader or audiobook. I put this together for you because I wanted you to have a support system. I wanted you to have a guide, me, the person that wrote the book. And if you wanted to gather up accountability there, that is what this group is for. It's for discussion, getting your questions answered, and just having a place to go and talk about these important topics that I write about in the book, right? The 14 habits that are holding you back from happiness. Hopefully, at this time, you have had a chance to start reading the book and you're getting into it. And I would be more than happy to have you in that group. If you just head on over to yourkickasslife.com, just jump on over to the show notes at slash 193. You might need to scroll down to the bottom a little bit and grab the link to join that group for free. It's all in there for you. Okay, y'all, this episode, I am so I don't even have a word to describe how much I am looking forward to having you hear it. When I asked Terry to be on, I knew that she's been on before. That link is in the show notes too. And I wanted to make sure that we talked about codependency because I was like, I don't know if I've ever really jumped in with an expert about this. I have struggled with codependency. It's severe codependency in my twenties. And I've, I've mentioned it many times here on the podcast, but I don't think that I've ever had somebody that has taken a deep dive in as much as Terry and I do in this episode. This is about boundaries. It's about codependency. And I'm so excited to have you here. Let me just tell you a quick little bit about Terry. She's 
She's a New York-based licensed psychotherapist and relationship expert. Terry's strategies combine practical psychology, Eastern mindfulness practices, plus harnessing the power of intention to create sustainable positive behavioral change, i.e. true transformation. So without further ado, here is Terry. Terry Cole, welcome back. Thanks so much for being here. I'm so psyched, Andrea, my friend. I am so excited to have this conversation. We got such a good feedback from when you were on before. And of course, I will pop that link into the show notes because I'm sure if someone is new to you and this is their first time being introduced to you, they're going to want to go back and consume all of the things, Terry Cole. <laughs> and I want to jump in and talk about like, let's jump right into the deep end and talk about yeah. codependency because right I throw that word around a lot over here and I, I identify as being, I actually went to Codependence Anonymous was my first soiree into 12-step programs many years ago. Mm. So I think there might be people listening who aren't particularly sure what that actually means. So can you tell us in your own words what that is? What do the behaviors look like? And how does someone know if they struggle there? Well, part of it is thinking about the way that you live your life. So like, do you constantly organize yourself around another person's needs, right? Does their bad mood, let's say, nullify your good mood if you come home? Are you trying to control all situations? Mm-hmm. Right. Part of it is if you feel like your relationship is kind of uneven, right, where one person takes the responsibility of fulfilling all of the needs of the other person, you know, you could be, this is what it feels like and looks like or can look like. There's lots of variations of this if you're operating in a codependent relationship. So if you or your partner, let's say, depending on which one you are, but I would venture to say there would probably be more women trying to control Mm -hmm. in relationships a lot of times because of how we're socialized and because of sort of our place in the social order of like the, you know, we're the bridgers, the assuagers, the fixers, the, you know, we're the moms, Mm -hmm. we're the moms, the nurturers. (laughs) Yes. So that's the beginning of a conversation. And, And the real thing is when something happens to them, your partner, does it straight up feel like it's happening to you, mm-hmm. which is different than it impacting you. When you're married and have children with someone, of course, what happens to them impacts you, but it's not the same as feeling like you must fix it Yeah, or you're trying to control their behavior, you know, like what they're doing. I mean, you know, codependency became more popularized around kind of the Melody Beatty material, which is all about, you know, addiction when you're in love with an addict, Mm -hmm. but it's so, so much more than that. And the work that I do is around high functioning codependency, which is a term that I coined because the regular codependency didn't actually fit with my demographic. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I remember reading Melody's book back in the nineties, I think. And at that point it had been around for a long time and it's been updated many times. And, and it is sort of like the only, the most popular book I think on codependency, there's many of them, but mm-hmm. yes, my first, well, I, what I found interesting is that she does mention in that book that the person, because I, I, again, I was, my therapist actually told me that I was a codependent and I, mm-hmm. I was insulted anytime mm. she pointed out any of my flaws <laughs> because I was in a relationship. And I think that this is codependent behavior. I was in a relationship where I put all of the blame on my partner. Like if he mm-hmm. would only 
get yeah. this shit together. We would be so much happier. And yeah. I put all, and I, and I was obsessed with trying to fix him and thus mm-hmm. fix us. And then, you know, yeah. the byproduct of that was that I would be happier. I would be fixed. I was mm-hmm. unable to, to take responsibility for my own stuff. So she had pointed out to me that I was codependent. And I remember reading the book and it, it does say, but there's not a lot of emphasis on it, that it doesn't necessarily have to be an addict, that it's someone that you're in a relationship who behaves badly. And in my case, it was infidelity and a list of things. So I like that high functioning codependency. Yes. Right. So, so let's make a distinction, right? How do we distinguish between like a kind of baller women? They're like you, they're like me. They're like the people, the women in our tribe getting stuff done, you know, wanting to be a good person, having all your own demons, whatever they may be. But high functioning is kind of the key. It's not necessarily the people who are, you know, can't get out of bed. You know right. what I mean? Or people and aren't so, saying like, oh, Terry, she's a hot mess. Like, definitely On not. the outside, things look pretty good. Yes. And it looks like when you're in that situation, you don't identify. I am a high-functioning codependent in recovery always and always. So I knew it was super different than the other thing and that people wouldn't see it because they were like codependent. I do everything. I get you done. I'm running the world. Like I am doing it. Yeah. Right. At the expense of yourself by trying to control every other person in your life by, you know what I mean? But (laughs) you might be doing it, but there's a cost for the way that you're doing it. And my last on my list, I'm exhausted. Does my self care constitute, you know, soul cycle three times a week. Yeah. Green juicing, but like never, you know, being scheduled within an inch of my life, not saying no, being the perfect yeah. mother, the perfect wife, the perfect CEO. Yeah, it does. And what is the cost of that? You know? Oh, nailing so many things. Okay. I was so glad that I decided to have you on again now. And I don't think that I've gone in depth at all within this topic, a hundred and almost 200 episodes now. And wow. I'm glad that you said, you know, the people pleasing, the perfectionism, because those are topics mm-hmm. in my book and I, I don't go into codependency in my book. So mm. I, I hope to God everyone's listening to this because, <laughs> yeah, these are the things that we do, those behaviors that you mentioned that we try to mm. get us to feel better, to cope and to make things right. look better. It's like this cycle that keeps happening over and over again. And then the question becomes like, why do I feel like shit? Why is my mm. life not, why am I not happy? And What do you think? Obviously, we know that the first step is to know that you are struggling there. Okay, I have one. I have one question before I ask about solution. And that is I've heard kind of, you know, around town. And what I mean by like in our industry, I've heard some experts say we all fall somewhere on the spectrum with codependent behavior. Do Mm -hmm. you think that that's true? I do. Okay. Because I do too. Yeah. Because it's part of the human condition. Yes. So so we don't need to vilify it. It's like we could call it something else being women, right? It's our <laughs> connectedness, human. right? Our connectedness is a big part of our identities for most women. The way our relationships have everything to do with our lives. Now, it doesn't mean get all of your self-esteem and your self-identification from outside of yourself at all. That's not what it means. But let's go back, you know, thousands of years. We are the gatherers, right? Mm-hmm. We are not going off on our own by. We're there taking care of the kids, you know, getting the nuts and the berries. We are keeping everyone together if someone is sick or taking care of them. We're still 
the bridgers and the caretakers of our communities. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't say this. I'm not, I don't want to be like pushing forward, like a generalization of stereotypes. I don't because there's many, many super nurturing men out there in the world too. I'm saying traditionally, and why would it be that we are wired this way naturally? Yes, things are changing, but you know, tell that to my central nervous system. You know what I'm saying? Right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, and I love that. I think that What I see, and you probably see this with your community too, is that because the women that I serve are so driven and they tend to be either high achievers or or overachievers and they want to do good in personal development. I see a lot of perfectionism in personal development is what I say Mm -hmm. a lot. And so when they kind of grasp on to this notion of codependency and they show up and they're committed to helping themselves, they want to look at the other side. It's black or white. Okay. Like what is Mm -hmm. the opposite of codependency? And then that's why I wanted to ask you that question. Like we all kind of do it. And so in my experience, going back to the definition you were, you were talking about before and describing it, mm-hmm. I think the turning point for me was I went to therapy. And what's what's kind of ironic about this therapy story is that my therapist had been telling me for years about codependency. I had read Melody's book and, and kind of had the basic understanding of what it was. I don't right. think at that time I was really ready to change yet. Mm-hmm. But what happened was, is I was in a, many people know this story. I was in a relationship with an addict and mm-hmm. I was fresh out of my divorce, like five minutes out of my divorce. When I started mm-hmm. dating him, it was the Perfect worst time. decision I could have made. Right. <laughs> Just plenty of time. <laughs> he found me. Yeah. He, we were a great match, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And nine months into that relationship, you know, he had lied about having cancer to cover up his opioid addiction. He had basically yeah. conned me out of thousands of dollars, yeah. out of leaving my apartment. I had isolated myself from all of my friends. I was in a, I was a high, I was in a high functioning depression is what was actually happening. Mm. And so when we went for family week, he was away at the meadows in Arizona. And that was really, I thank him for that because we ended up not working out, but he fell in love with another addict and broke up with me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thanks. I love that. Always the ones who should go, you know, we're yeah, never leaving, but that didn't work like, out. wow, you but, super don't deserve me. And you're right. Unbelievable. I'm thankful that he did that. Yeah, but but what happened was, is that I was forced into an environment for, I think it was like four or five days and got really great therapy when I was there and got some good books. And I have my journal entries from when I got home and mm. I was, and I love that I've kept them because you can kind of see the evolution of like when I started to wake up and when I started to become conscious of what was happening. And I was writing in my journal, I am not responsible for his recovery. I am Mm. not responsible for anything that I was relinquishing control. Mm. And I mean, this was, hold on. You were relinquishing the illusion of control. Thank you. Yeah. And it wasn't like the heavens opened up and and I was able to do it right away, but that was the (laughs) beginning. Yeah. I totally, I totally get it, but it's the realization and the relief. Do you know how, what, what is that feeling? And, And you people listening, think about the feeling, the relief of not having we feel responsible. So let's talk a little bit more about symptoms that people can, if, if it's okay with you, Andrew, yeah. about symptoms of like, because here's the thing, codependence isn't just in romantic relationships, right? You can be codependent with friends, siblings, Children. your boss. Mm-hmm. And so another thing that I think that so much of the time in the older, the seventies, eighties codependency literature and you know, all that stuff was super groundbreaking at the time to even put a name on it. You're like, wow, that's what's happening. But those of us in this industry have really expanded the definition. So let's talk a little bit about, so codependency can make you feel like, right, you're not good enough. So always comparing yourself to others and feeling worse 
as a result. Some of these are some actions you may be may taking. You may be taking, but even if you're successful, like what is driving that success? Other people have the assumption that if you're successful, if you were, it's all the compare and despair. You look at someone else's life and you're like, wow, it's so great. Mm-hmm. I wish mine was that great. You're like, okay, that's someone's life on Instagram, like on the most perfect moment of that day. Right. It's really not how people live. So when I say low, you know, the feelings of low self-esteem, it doesn't have to be the overt feelings. So again, identifying them, you know, this can be a little tricky. So that absolutely, that's my ideal client too, is she has all these things going on on the outside and she can't figure out why her interpersonal relationships are anywhere from in turmoil to not going very well. And Mm -hmm. they don't know how to set boundaries. And I think it's, it's frustrating for them because they're like, if I'm so smart, (laughs) if I can climb the corporate ladder and make multiple six figures in my salary, why can I not have this relationship go smoothly? And it's because they don't know how to have that hard conversation conversation. And, and yeah, so many things are involved with boundaries. And, and I think just to, I I do want to get into boundaries in a minute, but just to circle Mm -hmm. back and kind of tie it up with the concept of codependency. And I think that, like I was saying, you know, my first step was, and and you said like, you know, how did that feel? It it was peace and freedom. And Mm. that, and sometimes that might mean that you have to walk away from a relationship because (laughs) if you've been in a chronic codependent relationship with someone, chances are it's going to be kind of rocky when you decide that like, oh, I actually am not responsible for you completely. Mm -hmm. And I need to start to learn to relinquish control of this and, or the concept of having control. And it's not like flipping a switch. So can you talk about a little bit about the solution and like, what are the first steps beyond the realization that you have codependent tendencies? Well, the realization part is super important because it's very easy to point to other things. And like you said, back in the day, if that guy had just had a shit together, it all would have worked out just great. Mm -hmm. You know, and so really being willing to take control of your own life, your own choices, right? Because when we're in a codependent situation, we're constantly trying to control a situation because it's what makes us feel safe, right? right? We're trying to fix someone else's problem, micromanaging other people, feeling responsible for what's going on. And that's just a way to bind anxiety, mm-hmm. you know? It's, and again, it's an illusion that, you know, this illusion of if I micromanage it all, everything's in order, I can control the outcome and everything will be okay, which is not true because, you know, people have free will as do you. So moving into the real first question is looking at how many relationships in your life do you feel responsible for what happens? And I'm not talking about minor children, obviously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. So that's a whole different thing. And yes, we can talk about how to not become super codependent with your kids. And actually, I think that's a conversation that nobody is having and really needs to be having. But what are the first steps is looking at your relationships. A healthy relationship is about interdependence, right? It's not codependence and it's not complete autonomy because that's not building a life with someone either. It's interdependence where you communicate, where the other person may have a situation and instead of you being like, this is what you need to do, you can say, how can I best support you right now? What would actually be helpful? Mm -hmm. And when you're freaking out about something, that takes a minute to get to the point of, especially if you feel threatened by what's happening, 
in their life, in their world. So really it's about looking, who do you feel emotionally responsible for? You know, who's, when they call you, do you have like that tight pit in your stomach where you're like, oh my God, she lost another job. Holy crap. What am I going to do about it? Who do you get into action about in their life? Who are you doing things for that they can and should be doing for themselves? Mm-hmm. Oh man, I'm sure there's so many light bulbs that are going off right now. <laughs> People, myself included. And, mm-hmm. and I just had an aha moment because I've, I've always kind of wondered where it came from. And I know that, that it's not always necessary to find the origin or the source of our behaviors, but I think it can be helpful for people because they can go back and sometimes heal childhood yeah. wounds with a therapist yeah. or trauma specialist or whatever. But yeah. I remember sitting in therapy and I was an adult at that point. You know, I was, well, probably early 20s. Mm-hmm. And my parents had gotten divorced just a few short years prior. My dad was in early recovery from, he was a high functioning alcoholic mm-hmm. and my therapist wow, has, so was mine <laughs> same <laughs> lives twinning but my therapist told me Andrea your father is a grown man you are not responsible for his feelings Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that I, I felt responsible for my dad in terms of like, I mean, he was fine. Yeah. Like he was an adult and could take care of himself, but it was that emotional thing uh-huh. where my dad was a highly sensitive person and mm-hmm. didn't, he didn't have the best communication because when he would start to communicate, he would break down. And it was, we didn't grow up in a family where, where it was real easy to talk about the hard stuff. So when I grew up mm-hmm. and realized that, oh, everybody has hard stuff. We just never talked about it. Okay. I was heartbroken to watch my father struggle emotionally. Yeah. And um, I felt, you know, cause my mom had left. And Mm -hmm. so I took on that role. And again, I'm just having this aha moment of like, I think that's where my codependency started. It was with my father. And then I got into an adult relationship with someone I was with for 14 years. And the way you were describing like the micromanaging and like Mm -hmm. the checking up and, and I I was like his mother too. Like I had spreadsheets for his school schedule and made his dentist appointment. Oh my Mm -hmm. God. (laughs) It's so, you know, it's so infantilizing. Like when you're doing that and you want to talk about, you know, we don't need to interview Esther Perel about how that makes you not want to have sex with someone when you feel like their mother, because it does make you not want to have sex with them sometimes, you know, where like, oh, just another thing to check off my to-do list Mm -hmm. of figuring out when this guy needs to get his teeth clean. You know what I mean? Exactly. Ugh, it just, but I I think that those are, I want to just acknowledge that I think for many people, you know, talking about family of origin stuff, those can be some, I don't want to say hard lessons, but just really emotionally deep lessons to go back and that's for another episode. But, right, but let's, I want to talk about that for one quick Of second. course you do, Terry. Of course I do, because I'm a fucking therapist. Because here's the thing about that. This is my two cents on shit that's happened in the past. Okay. If there is no reason for us to go back and talk about shit that's happened in the past, I'm all for not doing it, right? That's my two cents. Uh-huh. If shit that's happened in the past is stopping you from getting what you want currently, in your life. I'm very interested then in going back. So I've come up with a way to make it easy, right? You don't have to be in therapy for 75 years. There's a way that you can understand how is potentially unresolved material from my family of origin, my childhood, my growing up, my teen years, whatever, this unresolved and mostly unconscious material. How is that driving My choice is now in the areas of my life where I can't seem to get what I want. Mm -hmm. Does this make sense? Yeah. So are you going to answer like, how do we know if it is actually an obstacle? Okay. Yes. And how do we know if we're repeating 
something. I call this, you know, downloaded blueprints around certain things. Mm -hmm. And I also call it repeating realities where Freud talked about repetition compulsion, right? And this was, you know, this is 1910 probably that he's writing about this, but he's talking about how we are drawn to repeat experiences, especially traumatic experiences. But then I've gone on to see in over 20 years of being a psychotherapist that there's many, many, many things that we're drawn to repeat because these are the models of behavior that we've seen, right? So unless you consciously go, oh, hey, I don't want to do that, or you consciously go, why? My father was abusive to my mother. I swore when I was a kid I would never be in an abusive relationship. How did I end up in this abusive marriage? Mm -hmm. So this is like a good example because it's so concrete. Well, let me just give the listeners, and we might have talked about this last night. I don't know, because it's actually a really easy tool that people can use. We can just put it in the show notes as well, is to understand what you're repeating. You ask those three questions. I call them the three cues, which is, who does this person remind me of? Where have I felt like this before? And why is this behavioral dynamic familiar to me? Mm-hmm. So if a woman said, well, obviously, so this guy reminds me of my father. So what? Like, how does that help me? Well, let me tell you how it helps you. When you bring this unconscious compulsion to repeat, it's like you are unconsciously seeking a do-over. Yeah. A better outcome. The little kid in you is ever hopeful Mm -hmm. that this time it's actually going to be different. But with no actual intervention with nothing else changing, you don't probably have the skills to make it different. So it's important that we bring this stuff up and out. So what do you do if people are listening and they go, okay, so I'm going to ask the three cues. I realize that my boss reminds me of my unavailable father, which is why I'm afraid of him. Now what? Well, now what? Now you need to talk to the 10-year-old inside of you because that's who's afraid of your boss, not the 35-year-old, right? Mm-hmm. And get clear in your conscious mind, wow, I was reacting to my boss like he was my father, which was really negatively impacting my work because I couldn't show him how smart I am because I was afraid of him. Now I really realize consciously in my waking life that he's not my father. There's no reason to avoid him. And I'm going to empower the healthy me, the healthy part of my mind and my ego to you know, kind of muscle through this resistance and share with him and be able to talk to him because he's my boss. And this is the only way I'm going to get ahead in the, in, you know, my business life or whatever. Sometimes with people just acknowledging what you're repeating, that could be 50% of the compulsion can just disappear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sounds a little bit like Harv Hendrick's work in the Mago theory and that we're unconsciously trying to heal our childhood wounds. And when you were giving that example of, you know, going to your boss and realizing, you know, it's not my father, I can have this conversation or whatever. I imagine like you're still sweating and shaking as you're Mm -hmm. having that conversation, (laughs) but you do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think too, we aren't always just attracted to people who, who inhibit the negative qualities of, of our people in our upbringing. Sometimes it's- Oh, wait. Yeah. You mean inhabit? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yes. Inhabit. Thank you. I think mm-hmm. I married my second, my current husband is a lot like my dad and he has a lot of his really great qualities. Yeah. He's, he's more of an introvert and he's quiet. He's an observer. He's, you know, financially secure and stable, just stable, stable. And I had so much mm-hmm. instability in my former relationships when I met him. 
him. I was like in love with this person. Yep. Yep. And then it was years later. I was like, oh, you're also passive aggressive. Like my dad. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, excellent. <laughs> but that's better than the other. This it we was. can work I did with. upgrade. <laughs> yeah. Let's have the conversation rather than, you know, have the explosion. Yes, exactly. Yeah, oh, yeah. All right. So let's sort of segue into boundaries. I know we, we touched on it a little bit before, and I think that one of the big solutions around healing from codependency is learning how to navigate boundaries. Wouldn't you say yep. so? I sure as hell would. Okay. What do you think is the women's biggest struggle when it comes to boundaries? Well, we've been socialized to be the earth mamas of the world, to give, 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 <laughs> right? to, to be selfless. We are held in high esteem if we would give the shirt off our back to anybody, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, say yes so at all costs. You say yes at all costs. And there sure as hell is a cost. Mm-hmm. So, so part of it is that, you know, we're coming up against this antiquated version of femininity, of mother of being a good wife, a good partner, a good friend, a good mother, all of these things, you know, are at the expense of your health. So, so you have to be able to be the good mother to yourself first and be like, if I'm no good, I'm no good for anyone. And this is everyone, Andrea, this isn't you. This isn't me. This is when you overgive because you have no boundaries, the only place that you will end up you know, that train only leads to one destination, which is like martyrville. You will only end up being a martyr. You will only end up resenting the people you claim to love the most and treating them badly and being really bitchy and starting to become, you know, have you ever had a martyr in your life who like mm-hmm. makes you feel guilty about things? Worst thing, least loving dynamic going. Yes. But how could you do this for me after all the things I have done for you? Yep. Yep. <laughs> I've and, been and, that person too. <laughs> oh, I mean, this, we've all sure as hell thought that thing. Like, yeah. you know, but, you know, I've done so much, you owe me type of thing. Yep. You know, I think that, how do we change it? Let's, let's talk about boundaries. First of all, let's just get the simple definition down, shall we? Yes. Boundaries, a boundary, right? We have physical, emotional, mental, psychological sexual boundaries. You know, there's a bunch of boundaries that we have. It's basically where you end, one person ends and another person begins. So Brene Brown has a beautiful, of course, definition, super simple, which is drawing effective boundaries is letting people know what is and is not okay with you. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the most, you know, big hearted people she's studied and worked with over the last 20 years, 25 years, whatever it is, are people who are the most boundaried. I mean, that's a direct quote because If you are loving, if you are giving in, if you are saying yes when you really want to say no, that isn't the most loving. Telling the truth, being willing to let the chips fall where they may, telling someone the truth about how you feel and what you want, prioritizing your own desires, and telling the truth, that is the most loving. So I find that with my clients, the boundaries that people struggle with the most are, you know, the interpersonal boundaries with people. Mm -hmm. There's authority figure boundary issues. There's also friendship boundary issues. There's, you know, you, you name it, you know, with your clients, you know what the boundary issues are, but people don't understand that they have a right to say no, that they have a right to opt out. They have a right to change their mind. They have a right to clarify something. They have a right to revisit a situation. If something happened that was messed up, that really didn't work for them. 
they have the right to go back and be like, oh, hey, Bob, you know that thing that happened last Wednesday? That really upset me. I did not like the way that went down. You don't just have to be like, well, shit, that happened. Right. That happened, and this is how you go back to saying, oh, hey, I have a simple request. If you want something from me, instead of asking me for it in the meeting, acting like you already did, you asked me for it before the meeting because you didn't last week, you know, or whatever the problem is. It's being willing to not fill the pregnant pause. That's so hard. <laughs> that pause. It's so good. In, in my coaching school, they call that waiting for it to land. Mm-hmm. And it's that it is that pause that is that can be so uncomfortable. And I, I write about this in, in my book and kind of give a step by step process. Mm-hmm. And it's very similar to what you were saying. And what I have also found really helpful, too, is is if it's not so much maybe in passing, but if it's a, com- like a, a conversation, maybe a sit down conversation is to start with gratitude. If it's genuine, yeah. you know, like, hey, yeah. Bob, thank you so much for your help with that project. And I so appreciate working with you because you're you're kind of it's not about manipulation. It's mm-hmm. just about being genuine and setting up the conversation to be heard because nobody likes to be told that they, <laughs> right. that they're, I mean, some people feel it as an attack and, and that's, you know, it's their reception of it. But I think right, but it's also you your delivery that, ever though. It's also your delivery because part, part of the whole thing, right. With having what I teach in boundary Boot Camp is how to have a proactive boundary success plan in any situation, mm-hmm. because you have to take into consideration Before you have that conversation with Bob, you need to look at your side of the street and be like, oh, wow, am I having some transference to Bob? Like, is Bob like that ex-boyfriend, like my bad uncle, like my stupid Mm -hmm. brother, whatever? Are you pissed off at Bob because of somebody else's shit is what you're trying to say. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And getting clear about what is your stuff and what is someone else's stuff. You know, we get so pissed off. I can't believe she had the nerve to ask me that. La, la, la. Well, anyone can ask you for anything. Mm-hmm. Right? It's your job to go, yeah, no, that doesn't work for me, though. So we'll have to come up with another solution. So for me, the most empowering thing I feel like that I taught in Boundary Boot Camp and that I teach my clients is about the language, right? I came up with something called the Boundary Bible, where it's all the language in the world that you could ever need for every situation from a mother-in-law who criticizes your cooking to a boss who's sexually harassing you to whatever, because so much of the time for 20 years, women would say, you know, we would, we would uncover all the reasons why it was hard for them to draw boundaries. We would get right to that place of them being like, I I was going to do it. I was right there. I was at his desk. And then I realized I just didn't have the words. Yeah. Yeah. We don't ever learn that. You know, we don't, we don't have boundary Bibles like at home, like on the coffee table. So how do we know? And, and what's interesting is I wrote about this in my book too. I I think there's a myth around boundaries and I was attached to this myth that people who, well, first of all, women who set boundaries are bitches and Mm -hmm. that in order to set a boundary, you need to, you know, you're basically waving your finger in somebody's face being demanding yep. and getting very assertive and, and sometimes aggressive if necessary. And that is actually mm-hmm. not how you do it. Yep. Oh, no. Well, well, that's the fear. And that's the fear mind, the ego mind yep. telling you, stay the same. Don't rock the boat. Oh, don't yeah. make waves. You'll be rejected from the tribe and you'll mm-hmm. die. Right. This is our, you know, the reptilian brain 
telling us like it's it's a survival thing, you know, which is a very real thing. I want to underscore that because what we know from science is that our brains, our reptilian brain, as you put it, has not evolved from way back when, when back then, if you did something bad to someone else and you were rejected Mm -hmm. from the tribe, it meant death. Mm-hmm. So, and that's a very real thing that has stayed with us very unconsciously. But right. yeah, I, I just wanted to underscore that. So please continue. Yes, because here's the thing. It's so easy, especially with super high functioning women to just take it on ourselves. Like, I can't believe I, I, it's just if I if I worked harder, if I did more, the whole perfectionist trap thing, you know, mm-hmm. where it's not real. Well, maybe real, may not be real. It doesn't matter. That's not the fix, right? Making yourself feel like shit about something is not the answer. Right. It's like, oh, okay, this is, this is happening. Now, how do I change it? How do I move forward? You know, that fearful place. Part of it is when you break that spell, that's just what I wanted to talk about quick, that I distinctly remember when I was a talent agent, I was in my early thirties. So keep in mind in my twenties, I was probably super passive aggressive as everyone else. And like, you know, not being direct with what was happening. There's all of these ways. And when I started in therapy, and really learning about what is passive aggressive communication? What is indirect communication? What does that look like? And all of the reasons why it's such a bad plan, because you're really, it's so confusing to people. Mm-hmm. So when someone, you know, and everyone listening knows this, you know, but is everything okay? You see mad? No, I'm fine. Looking out the window in the car, not looking at the person, not talking. Oh, are you fine? Because you seem mad. I'm just tired. Why, why, why the inquisition? I'm just exhausted. Can I just be tired? Like you're getting your anger out without saying why you're angry. And you're like, you know, using your anger to beat that person in the face. Right. But the thing is that person can't change, isn't going to change stuff that you don't actually tell them is going on. You can't think that they minds, should know. Unfortunately. No, they can't. And what we're doing, though, is sabotaging ourselves, setting them up to fail, right? Setting up everyone around you to be uncomfortable because it's like a weird, uncomfortable dynamic. So there's so many reasons to just learn how to be direct and how to be loving. But it requires you to be vulnerable. And this is the thing we don't want to do. Right. I mean, we do, but we don't, you know, like in theory, we do. But our, you know, our fear mind is like, don't do it. If they know that about you, then they can annihilate you, you know? Yeah, it's and I, I often say this about my own experience that the whole time I was, you know, my 20s where I was severely codependent, and I was a, also a raging love addict. Connection, intimacy, trust, vulnerability, those are all things that I wanted the most from a partner. And they were the things that I was terrified of. So my mm. behaviors clearly showed that, you know, through codependency and, and love addiction. And what's interesting when you were talking about vulnerability just then, it made me think of, of my clients and they, they come to the work that I do because that's what we do. Like we, it is all about vulnerability and courage. And what's interesting is, and they know what they're getting into when I get, you know, I have one client I'm thinking of right now and she was really good. We do these like little exercises over time to kind of like just exercise that muscle of vulnerability. And Mm -hmm. I don't throw them in the deep end right from the beginning. We start small. And one of the exercises I gave her was she had some very, very close female friendships and she was always really good about writing them notes and telling them how much she appreciates them and cares about 
about them. And Mm -hmm. so I gave her the challenge of saying it out loud to them in person. I wanted Mm -hmm. it to come out of her throat chakra. I mean, these are people that she trusts and they trust her. You know, it's, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna work out. It's a sure thing. Right. Mm -hmm. But it was terrifying for her in many ways because we're just not used to it. And it's scary. And again, that unconscious brain is like, well, I don't know. know? (laughs) Yes. Well, another thing to think about with the vulnerability is like you said, we're so not used to doing it. And I always talk to clients about voluntary vulnerability. So this isn't about learning how to be vulnerable with everyone, because why would you want to do that? It's about learning how to be vulnerable in chosen situations. And it's about learning how to be discerning, right? You don't meet someone and tell them that you're deepest, darkest in the first three hours. And if you do, that's a poor boundary. Right. Which I think many of us have done myself on an airplane, yeah, yeah, at the salon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's exactly right. And it feels it, it can be a hard thing to learn. Like, well, how do I moderate this? Right. What is the right amount of, you know, sharing? And people also I found that in my my group, um, people would feel like they had to almost confess you know, like by the second date, should I tell them that I had that bad childhood experience? I'm like, no. Right. How about you don't have to ever tell them that unless you want to. Like, mm-hmm. and again, deciding how you feel, there is no urgency and anything you're doing with that sense of like constricted fear, lack, if I don't do this, I will lose them. Or if I don't share this, like it's this false intimacy where it's like an instant intimacy mm-hmm. I and mean, intimacy can only develop over time. Right. You know? Yeah. I know Brene Brown calls that hot wiring a connection. I think it's the mm. same way with gossip too. I think we do that many times to, to try to hot wire a connection, which is a conversation yep. for another time. Oh yes. Yeah, so good. <laughs> Well, clearly I have to have you on again for a third time because I'm sure we have so much more to talk about. And this topic itself, I think, is so juicy. And I'm so glad that I had you on and and really got an intuitional download to, to talk about this. And I and love it. I'm I so was like, glad. why? I didn't even know what we were talking about. And then when you started, I was Until like, just amazing. before. I know. You're so good, Terry, just on your toes like that. So, of uh-huh. course, as always, everyone, the show notes have all the links to the courses that Terry talked about. And we'll even link to those books that we a couple of books that we talked about. Thank you so much, Terry, for being here and sharing your wisdom with us today. I so appreciate it. No problem. Thank you, Andrea. It's always a pleasure. Let's do it again. Uh, thank you, everybody. And I think that's it. Thank you so much. Again, if you have not already, please, please, please buy my book. And Ooh. until next time, I will see all of you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye. Hey, ass kickers, you know, it would help me out so much if you left a rating and review for this podcast. Your Kick-Ass Life podcast will always be free to you and to help me get more awesome guests and to spread the word, it helps tremendously if you leave a rating and a review. Now, they don't particularly make this super easy to do, so I'll help you out a little. If you're in iTunes and you're on your phone, when you are in the podcast app, you need to search for Your Kick-Ass Life podcast. I know, even if you're subscribed, This is how you do it. So when you search for it and you see it come up, click on the cover art, then towards the top where it says reviews, click that, scroll down a tiny little bit, and then click write a review. Stitcher is a bit easier if you're on Android. The easiest way I found to do this is to type into Google stitcher.com, your kick-ass life, and voila, my podcast should pop up as the first link. Scroll down and click write a review. That's it. Thank you so very much. You have no idea how much it helps me when you do that. All right. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.